Listener Production. Take it away, my dulcet toned Adonis. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, Gistners, and welcome back for another episode of Just the Gist, a weeklyish podcast where Rosie Waterland and I, Jacob Stanley, give you just the gist of what you need to know about a topic we think you'll find worthy of bringing up at a dinner party for discussion. Rosie, back in Adelaide, how are you? I'm good. I'm feeling like my little take it away, Dulcet Tone Adonis, is getting like more and more like sexual every week. I don't know. I think it's just because when I try, in my mind, having a non-nasally voice means having a sexy voice. <laughs> it's so erotic. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm good. I'm back in um, old Adelaide. And um, how are you, my love? Yeah, very well. Uh, it's been a big couple of weeks in my family world, but um, everything's mm. starting to sort of settle down now and I'm kind of winding my way back down the East Coast, heading south, going mm. back to uh, the real world. Well, I will say if we're doing um, a little check-in of Jacob William Stanley Tan Watch, uh, <laughs> I think because I've got this new ring light, this fancy ring light that makes me look extra pale porcelain, you look extra brown compared to me right now. <laughs> I really do. Yeah, you really do. And especially with the hoodie and the, your blonde hair's like gotten really long and curly, you're looking very beach bum. It's very straggly, yeah. Mm, I, yeah. No, not no one straggly. would be surprised if they saw me smoking a doobie. It's very just like chilling on the beach and that Airbnb tacky made by Cath Day Night artwork <laughs> behind you there. It's... um. It's a whole picture we've got going on. (laughs) Tell us a story, yes. Oh, my God, okay. So I'm going this week and I'm doing one that I've been wanting to do for a while, but there's actually so much Mm. more on it than you would think and so much more to it than I even realised. So it ended up taking me longer to get put together than what I thought, but I am doing the what is called probably one of the greatest and first viral marketing campaigns of all time, the Blair Witch Project. <laughs> um, great, excellent. I haven't heard anything about this for so long. But you're right, it was a huge well, phenomenon, yeah. Yeah, it was. But when you say you haven't heard anything about it, what do you mean? Like the movie or the marketing behind the movie or what? I haven't. It just hasn't come up in conversation for a really long time, but it was a really big sensation when we were in high school, I think probably like year eight or nine or something. And the big debate was, is it real or is it Is it real? Staged? Yeah. Did you think it was real? I didn't fall for that. No. I did. You did? Oh, okay. Oh, um, um, yeah. I was hook, line and sinker. I can remember that the three stars of the movie, I don't know if they actually were involved in the production of the movie as well, but that they ended up on the cover of Rolling Stone or something like that mm-hmm. around the time that it came out. So it seemed pretty obvious to me that obviously they'd survived this encounter. Well, it actually, Um, they weren't on the cover of Rolling Stone until about six months after it had come out. So there was a very, which maybe because we were in Australia and we were behind, but they they purposely kept them out of the spotlight for almost six months. So people thought they were dead or missing. Okay. And obviously we didn't have the internet back then as well. All right. So I definitely don't know the whole story. Yes, there's a whole lot goes into it, but um, we'll get to it because it's really funny and I was a massive nerd in year nine. So, wait, was I year nine? 1999, so I was year eight, which means uh-huh. you were year nine? Yep. Yeah, 
and I was full into it in a big way. It's embarrassing. So, <laughs> hooray! But first, I think you probably want to take it away with some. <gasps> Breaking news, breaking news, I got the scoop, see, x-ray, x-ray, read all about it, breaking news. I really wanted to talk about the fact that, I don't know if you've noticed on Instagram, but I've become really obsessed with finding a bike. I really want to get a bike Mm. and there is a worldwide shortage of bikes. What is that about? I don't know. But I literally went into a bike shop and I was like, please take my money. And they were like, Soz, there are no bikes. Because apparently during COVID, everyone decided I'm going to take up bike riding. And so everyone went and bought all the bikes. And because of like manufacturing coming from China or wherever, there are no more bikes to refill the sold bikes. So there are no bikes. And just (laughs) when I was like, yes, like active health kick. I'm going to get into bike riding. And I live in this flat city now where I can ride around. And and I was like, I'm going to be like, ding, ding, zoom, zoom. And I was like, so excited. And I was like, Caleb, get in the car. Let's go to the bike shop. I'm going to get a bike. And then it was such a letdown because it was like, soz, no bikes. Is it just the particular bike you're looking for? It's just like full shortage everywhere. Well, I am very particular about the kind of bike I want. So I want the bike to like... uh, to be aesthetically like what I want. (laughs) So I want it to be that kind of vintage hipster looking bike, but then I want it to be a new bike. So Caleb was like, why don't you just get an actual vintage bike? And I was like, because I don't want to die. Like I want a new bike (laughs) with all the proper brakes and all the ways a bike is safe, but I want it to look hipster and insufferable and vintage. Okay. And so, which is, I thought would be easy because that's the kind of bike everyone wants, but um, it's actually really hard to find. And then all these people will like go on Facebook Marketplace and go on Gumtree, which I did, but it's like everybody is still insisting that they're into their bike they bought three months ago. So no one's selling them yet. Can people hurry up and get sick of the bike they bought three months ago and sell it to me? Or donate to you. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, or donate to me. No, but I just want to, I was so excited about wanting a bike and there's no bikes. Oh, honey. I mean, I know like some people have died during COVID, but this kind of feels like a true tragedy. This is the first time I feel like I've been really negatively affected by this worldwide pandemic. I couldn't (laughs) get a bike at the exact moment I wanted to spend a ridiculous amount of money on one. How dare you? Worldwide virus. don't feel for you very much sympathy, (laughs) not because of the pandemic, but because I have always been staunchly anti-bike. Why? I will never get on a bike ever. Um, They are a pain in the butt. Whether you're driving a car or you're a pedestrian, a bike is a nuisance. Always anti-bike. But I don't want to ride it on the road. I'm not a crazy person. And in Adelaide, you know you're allowed to ride them on the footpath? Oh, well, see, well, there okay. you go. When you're a pedestrian, they're a nuisance. <laughs> but we live in this house where two kilometres from the beach on one side and we're two kilometres from the city on the other side. And so I'll figure I'll just go down to the beach and there's this cute little bike path along the beach. So I'll just be like, zoom, zoom, ding, ding, and I'll go for a little rides just down there. I won't be in anyone's way. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> well, I hope it all ends well for you and the people of Adelaide. Well, anyway, I'm looking, yeah, I just, if, please, people who make bikes, 
tell me when there's bikes again because there is a worldwide bike shortage and not enough people are talking about it. <laughs> we really need to shine a light on this issue. We do. Oh, so you know how we were talking a couple of weeks ago about that new documentary about Nexium called The Vow? Yes. So I've been watching it and it's not great. I don't really like it. Have you watched it? No, not yet. Well, I haven't loved it. I think because it's, and I'd be interested to see if other people think the same. It's all the big major people who were in Nexium, so who were in this cult organisation, who then sort of realised it was dodgy and left. But what the reading I've done is that a lot of people are not super comfortable with them being the ones who are the face of like um, calling out this um, cult because they were ones who perpetrated a lot of the worst stuff inside it. Right. And so they one day were like, oh, we're whistleblowers now. It's all about how brave we are calling this out. Mm. But then all these people were like, but you did the worst things to me. You were literally at the top of the organisation. And so it did, I had noticed in the vow that it focuses very much on like, um, it doesn't really go into the awful things they did. And because they were so integral to the organisation, the cult, if they're not going into the awful things that these people did, they can't really go into the awful things about the cult at all because that would reveal too much about about like I just feel like there's not enough detail in it. They're sort of mm-hmm. leaving stuff out. But then this other documentary about it has come out called Seduced, mm. and that focuses more on the victims and like people who weren't really high up in the organization, really. And this one girl called India Oxenberg, who mm. was quite famous because her mum is Catherine Os- Oxenberg, who was in Dynasty. And so she stayed in the cult for a really long time, and she's produced this documentary that kind of says all the effed up things they really did and really explains how it was a cult from the start and how it was dodgy from the start. And that's the other thing about The Vow. Because all these people were really high up in Nexium, they keep saying, oh, it was actually really great. It actually was a really helpful thing for you personally. It's just that Keith the leader was dodgy. But this girl is like, no, no, it wasn't great. It wasn't good for you personally. It was a cult from the second you walked in the door and here's how. And there's all Mm. these cult experts in it and all these like um, psychologists who look at how people get sucked into things. They, They sort of look at how it compares to things like Jim Jones and Heaven's Gate and stuff. And so, yeah, I think there's like a battle of these two documentaries about Nexium, and I kind of like Seduced better. Okay, and where can we find that? Seduced is on Stan and The Vow is on Binge or Foxtel. So I really want us to do an episode about Nexium, but like I'm just waiting. So much is coming out about it right now, so I'm just waiting to consume it all. Okay, well, in that case, I'm going to pause on watching Seduced until we've done your episode of Nexium. Yes, Yes, maybe all of you do that too because then I'll be telling you things you already know. So (laughs) don't watch stuff. Put it on your future (laughs) watch list. Yes, exactly. Oh, my God, we got so many emails from people saying they watched Class Action Park and they loved it and it reminded them of when they got third-degree burns going down the slide at Jamboree. (laughs) 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 So many people. And even Jamboree has changed its name to Jamboree Action Park. 
Yeah, yeah. And people were like, oh, I wonder if they were inspired by the original. Actually, oh, yeah, inspired by, sure. Yes, right. But I feel like we should also probably stop comparing Jamboree to a park where lots of people died or get sued. Probably, yes. Yes. (laughs) But isn't it endearing that so many of us can unite on such a deep level over the fact that we got such bad burns on that toboggan ride? And also so many people emailed in saying, remember when um, you used to go to Wonderland, the theme park in New South Wales, as a maths excursion because you would look at all the angles <laughs> of the rides? Yes. Like, oh, there's a there's a right angle on that roller coaster. Okay, have six hours of fun. Maths. <laughs> <laughs> so uh. people loved class class action park. Can I just say, I also loved how we used to go to the Sydney Royal Easter show as a way of learning about agriculture and all it meant to us was mm. show bags and rides and fried oh, yeah. food. But it, it would be like, oh yes, make sure you go farming. look at the, the alpacas and the produce tent and we'd all be like, see ya, wouldn't want to be ya. And you're like, run to where the fairground is and don't leave all day. <laughs> Eat 10 um. Dagwood dogs, 50 show bags. Go on a roller coaster that could very well break apart mid-air. Yeah, it's surprising that no one's ever died that I'm aware of at any Easter show across the country. Well, you see bloody news stories from like tiny little Eastern European countries where people are falling off roller coasters all the time. So I don't know why it doesn't happen here. I feel like they're all probably made in the same place. <laughs> oh, still less risky than a bike, as far as I'm concerned. I know. And my last bit of breaking news, which I feel like breaking news has really just turned into recos, um, but there's this new podcast I'm listening to called Maintenance Phase, and it's by, you know, we love, You're Wrong About. Mm-hmm. So one of the hosts of You're Wrong About, uh, Michael Hobbs, he a couple years ago wrote a really famous article that went like internationally viral famous for the Huffington Post and it was called Everything You Know About Obesity is Wrong and he's done a lot of research into, you know, weight stigma and and the weight loss industry and how so much of it is a sham and he's also since then um, pivoted into doing a lot of research on the wellness industry in general and how there's so many wellness scams and how there's so much misinformation and just nonsense like coming out to do with, you know, nutrition and and just, you know, goop style, ridiculous money wasting things. And so he's now started a podcast and each week they're going to go into like a different kind of dodgy thing in the wellness industry. And Mm -hmm. because he's an incredibly gifted, talented investigative journalist, Mm -hmm. he really does the research and he really knows his shit. The first episode uh, he did, his co-host is this woman um, who's on Twitter as Your Fat Friend. And so she's um, been quite famous for her fat activism on Twitter for a long time. Um, The first episode they did, they just talked all about the myth of the obesity epidemic and the prejudice that fat people kind of have to put up with in every walk of life. And and so they go a lot into that, but then it's not just going to be about weight stuff. It's going to be all about like each week they're going to tackle a different kind of um, dodgy wellness phase or trend or whatever. And it is so good. Like I've only listened to the first episode and I was already just like, I got really teary listening to it because I was like, man, 
it is just such a relief to hear people just go, you know what, these are the facts, here are the peer-reviewed scientific studies, here is the nonsense that Gwyneth Paltrow is trying to sell you, and here is what is actually true. Like, Mm. you know what I mean? It's just a really good podcast already. I'm very interested to listen to that because it's quite timely <clears throat> considering um, there's been quite a bit of talk lately about conspiritualism and how yes. people who have been so immersed in wellness and the search for truth because they feel like they've been manipulated by big sugar and big farmer and whatever, um, they've been seeking truth through wellness and paleo diets and essential oils and chia seeds and all that sort of stuff. And now they've sort of crossed over to um, believing in QAnon. There's been this big convergence Mm. of people who believe in conspiracy theories and people who um, believe that they've found their own true path to wellness. Um, So, I mean, the best place you could start if you want to hear more about that would be an article that Sarah Wilson wrote about conspiritualism. Um, And also, if you're curious... It's on The Guardian, I think. Yes, it was, yeah. Mm. Yeah. In the meantime, my um, QAnon member... Trump lover friend um, (gasps) has said that the great awakening is happening this very week. So we can all expect Mm. that Hillary and Biden and Oprah and Tom Hanks are all going to get arrested before the weekend. Oh, are they? Mm, Apparently. It's very shocking for people. And so, you know, like my friend, and I can't say her name in case this does end up in the episode, um, but she did say in one of her recent posts, you've all told me to listen to Rabbit Hole. I've listened to Rabbit Hole. It's a whole load of bullshit. That's just propaganda Mm. trying to make people um, disbelieve what is right in front of them. Like it is cult mentality because they've all just decided that they're on board. They're following this mysterious leader Mm. called Q, which, by the way, if you want to know, I'm going to actually post this on Instagram to tell everyone about it. There's an amazing episode of a podcast called Reply All, where they actually Mm. interviewed the guy who invented 4chan and 8chan and (gasps) then was kicked out of the company. And he reckons he absolutely knows the person who has been masquerading as Q. But when you listen to the whole episode and you get to understand how 4chan and 8chan work, you can Mm. just see how ridiculous the whole thing is, but you can see how easy it has been for them to manipulate all of these people who are incredibly malleable. I've heard it's Ghislaine Maxwell. (coughs) Oh, really? (laughs) That's what I've heard. (laughs) Oh, wouldn't that be neat? Alrighty, Jacob, Jacob William Stanley, here we go. I'm going to give you Mm -hmm. just the gist of the Blair Witch Project. Dun, dun, or dun, just dun, the gist I wish of I knew Rosie what the theme music nerd. was. <laughs> well, that, it didn't have theme music. That was one of the things that made it so such an eerie film. It had no soundtrack. Um, oh. it, it blew people's mind. Well, because it was all meant to be found footage. So mm. it's not like people footage people film on their own video camera it has a soundtrack. Like I said, I can't remember having fallen for believing that it was absolutely real, but I definitely was terrified at the end of that movie in a way that Mm. I had never actually experienced from a horror movie previously. And my friends and I, thanks to the movie Scream, were obsessed with horror films in a really big way. We'd seen so many of them, but I had never felt a sense of fear before that I ended up experiencing when I actually snuck into the Mm. movies to see Blair Witch Project. Well, it was incredibly well made in that 
the film itself was really cleverly done and really well made mm. and really eerie with things that were so different at the time. So, for example, there was no music or soundtrack. Even the thing that um, blew people's minds was when it cut to credits, the credits were completely silent. So when the film ended, you just had sort of these weird sounds of people in the cinema going, oh, my God, I just shut my pants. That was so, like people just sitting there looking at like all you could hear was people kind of like whispering amongst each other. And um, also the fact that the actors in the film filmed all the footage themselves. So there wasn't mm. like most found footage films like that went on to happen, like, you know, the Paranormal Activity movies and Cloverfield and all that stuff. The footage is filmed by someone else, but in this all the footage is filmed by these actors. So a lot of people actually threw up during the film because the camera work was so shaky because it was just three actors filming on camcorders. So it was really well made and different, but then it was also marketed in such a genius way that I think even if people thought maybe the film itself was fictional, those people even thought, that it was still based on a real legend. Like, the Blair Witch is a real legend. This film is fake. And, like, I mean, what people didn't realise is the entire thing, from the history of the Blair Witch to all of it, is completely conceptualised just by these guys from a film school. Like, all of it is fake. (laughs) But I think we should explain, because probably for some of our younger... I know we're millennials, but we are... We do seem to be at the... um, we're cusps. Being millennials, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> people younger than us may not even really understand the concept of the internet not being around and not really having phones. And there were, I think, mobiles were sort of a thing around this time, but never filming on them. I mean, the most fancy thing you had on your phone was you could play Snake and like pick a different beepy ringtone. Oh yeah, nineteen ninety nine, the Nokia fifty one ten reigned supreme. Fifty one ten. Yeah. It had um, an antenna. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, like, you couldn't... This wasn't a time where, you know, it, uh, these kids, these, well, they were college students, could have filmed stuff on their phone. Like, this was all old-school camcorders and stuff. But um, I guess I'll just get into explaining it. So, for those of you who have no idea about it, here is just the gist. <laughs> Released in 1999. So, I was uh, in year eight. You were in year nine. We were wee little mm-hmm. bebés. Mm-hmm. The Blair Witch Project was a film that told the story of three film students who go missing while making a documentary about the legend of the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. And the movie's posters were freaking brilliant. They had a, um, just a close-up of this girl's face who looked terrified, kind of like she was filming herself, as they call it today, a selfie. But we didn't have mm-hmm. that language back then. So it just looked like she had a camera on herself and her face looked terrified, And the tagline on the poster said, in October of 1994, three student filmmakers disappeared in the woods near Burkittsville, Maryland, while shooting a documentary. A year later, their footage was found, dot, dot, dot. So (laughs) everyone sort of was thinking, this is a movie with actual found footage of three college students who went missing. And I remember like hearing that it was coming out because there was a lot of sort of talk about it and rumours about it and whispers about it, which, you know, in hindsight is because they marketed it that way. They, they, the reason we were talking about it is because they 
had a very genius marketing campaign that ensured everybody mm. was talking about it. But, um, yeah. you know, we just started hearing that this movie was coming out that was showing the last real days before these people disappeared. And, like, we didn't really have the internet. We, I mean, we had the internet at my public high school. We had one computer in the library that had the internet and you could book it for 15-minute slots for a dollar. And it was so slow. Like, I remember you would book it for all of lunch. So that was like two or three 15 minute slots. So you'd pay three bucks. And by the end of lunchtime, I would only be halfway through downloading a picture of the Backstreet Boys to print out. Like, that's yeah. how slow the <laughs> internet was. It was so <laughs> shit. So we had it, but it was very new. And websites and search engines, like, I think Google was either not existing yet or very new. So people didn't really know how to use it. Like you would search something and it would have like three search results as opposed to 10 million. Um, So when people started hearing about the Blair Witch and they went online to search it, they found a bunch of stuff. Like there was news stories about how these students had gone missing and there was like, you know, a website that told you about the legend of the Blair Witch And a little documentary came out called The Curse of the Blair Witch. It was a half an hour documentary on TV and it went into the history of the legend of this witch and it also talked about how these three college students went missing. I think I do remember that. that. Yeah, and they were like, oh, my God, this movie's coming out, all about this. And there was also a book called The Blair Witch, A Dossier, which I shoplifted from Grace Brothers because it was called Grace Brothers then. You I was didn't. with my friend. I was with my friend Shelly and we really badly wanted it because we were obsessed with this story and we really badly wanted it. So I it's the, like pretty much one of the only things I've ever stolen. I shat my pants and then I ran all the way to Penrith Plaza station and like did not feel safe until I got on a train back up to the Blue Mountains. But this book <gasps> was filled, it was called a dossier and it was filled with like interviews with private investigators who were like trying to find the college students and it was filled with like old historical documents of like you know back in the town when the Blair Witch was supposedly around and it was filled with like um, pages from one of the college students diaries and it, it seemed like a real book about a like a real true crime book about a real mm. disappearance so I was so in it. I was like, this thing is real. I can't wait for this to come out. I've read this book. I'm in it. I'm there. It was when I did see it, I didn't sneak in. We just went during the day. So I must have been old enough or looked old enough. So we went to Penrith Plaza, me and my friend, and we watched it and it was sold out because everyone was obsessed. And it was, like you said, one of the scariest things I'd ever seen in my entire life. Like I was petrified. Mm-hmm. I cannot explain how disturbing yet not really graphic. Like the ending is not graphic. It's not um, cheesy, but it is just so eerie and disturbing. And the movie ended and it was such genius not having any sound during the credits because it just meant mm-hmm. everyone was just sitting in the cinema like, did I actually just watch a real person get like, what did I just watch? Yeah, yeah. It was, and um, I think a huge part of that terror was because you sort of went into the movie not knowing if it was real or not or thinking, like me, that it was real. For sure. And then, like, the filming style is 
I mean, it's so incredibly immersive because it's mostly yeah. from the first person perspective. And then the fact that there are no special effects and there's no audio engineering mm-hmm. to make anything in any way unrealistic. It just plunges yeah. you directly into everything that's yeah. happening. So it all feels so deeply connected to all of your senses. Um, yeah. And it's and so almost for like the kids, an, an illusion. Yeah, for the kids listening, it is like you're watching a movie of three people have filmed a whole bunch of stuff on their phones and then those people go missing and then a year later their phones are found and they find all this weird footage on their phones. Like that's kind Mm. of the premise, but it was video cameras. So I'm going to walk you through now like the film, what happens in the film, okay? Mm -hmm. And then we'll talk about the marketing and all of that afterwards. Mm -hmm. So the film, The Blair Witch Project, is made up of footage that has been found on the cameras of film students Heather Donoghue, Josh Leonard and Mike Williams. Mm -hmm. As students at film school, they had heard about this urban legend about something called The Blair Witch, who was apparently uh, a witch that murdered a bunch of kids a long time ago and haunted the town ever since. And the first part of the film is uh, Heather, Josh and Mike interviewing local people from the town of Burkittsville about the legend. All the people they interview seem pretty scared to be talking about it and all pretty much believe that it's real. Everyone in the town believes that it's real. They all think that the Blair Witch is something or someone evil that has cursed their town for hundreds of years. And in interviewing these people... Heather, Josh and Mike find out that in 1785, Burkittsville was then called the Township of Blair and several Mm -hmm. children accuse a woman called Ellie Kedward of luring them into her house to draw blood from them to make potions. So Mm -hmm. the kids are fine, but Ellie Kedward is found guilty of witchcraft and she's banished to the woods in the middle of winter, which where they are, winter is like minus 100 degrees. So that is being banished to the woods in winter is a death sentence. She Mm -hmm. never like returns, so she's presumed dead. But not long after this, all the children who accused her of witchcraft vanish along with several other children in the town. And the townspeople assume they've been cursed by a witch and vow never to mention Ellie Kedward's name again, even changing the the name of the town from Blair to Burkittsville to try and move on from the whole thing. The kids are never found Mm -hmm. and they think that she was a witch who got them all. Mm-hmm. But even though they changed the name of the town and they vowed to never talk about her weird, terrifying stuff to do with kids dying or going missing keeps happening in the town over the years. So in 1825, so that's about 50 years later, 11 witnesses testify to seeing a woman's hand reach up out of the river and grab a small girl and pull her down underwater and the girl is never seen again. But a week later, bundles of sticks start washing up on the shore covered in like this oily substance. And they say that the oily substance is what happens. It's the leftovers of like when a witch has done a spell. It's like evil, gooey stuff. Oh, like the residue that the ghosts leave in Ghostbusters. Mm, Yes, exactly. It's Uh like presence of the paranormal. Ectoplasm. Um, Is that it? Ectoplasm. I I, I don't know. Whatever. In yes, nerd. Okay, nerd. In in eighteen eighty six. Um. So what's that maths? 
about another 50 years later. No, 40 mm. years. Oh, who cares? An eight-year-old girl <laughs> goes missing <laughs> and a search party goes into the woods looking for her. She eventually wanders back into town on her own, but the search party doesn't. And they are found a week later in the woods, their arms and legs tied together and all of them disemboweled. And they've been put on display with piles of rocks and sticks around them in that kind of ritualistic looking way that it looks like it's some kind of satanic or evil ritual. Mm. Um, And there's a big gap after this. So that was 1886. And people assume the curse is lifted. But then Mm. between 1940 and 1941, seven children are abducted from Burkittsville. And in May 1941, this old hermit guy who lives in town called Rustin Parr walks into the local supermarket and says, I'm finally finished. And they're like, yo, finished what, Rustin, you weirdo? So police go to his house in the woods and they go to his basement and they find the bodies of all seven children in there. They had each been ritualistically killed and disemboweled. There's those stone things and stick things around them like those people from years ago. He told the police that an old witch had told him to do it and that he killed them one by one. He would make one child face the wall in the corner of the basement and listen while he killed another. And they weren't allowed to turn around. They just had to stand in the corner facing the wall, waiting their turn. So Rustin Parr is convicted and hanged. And ever since then, the legend of the Blair Witch had terrified the town. And Rustin Parr's house apparently um, was still sitting abandoned in the woods. People just didn't want to go near it. And so after interviewing all these locals and hearing all of this backstory, Heather, Josh and Mike decide to venture into the woods to find some of these locations where these things happened, to find maybe Rustin Parr's house. And at this point, they pretty much think they're making a documentary about hysteria and about a bunch of townspeople who believe a nonsense legend. They think that probably what happened was Rustin Parr was just a crazy murderer who did some horrible things and the rest is just silliness. Mm-hmm. So they hike in, they park their car on the edge of the woods and they hike into the woods and they hike to a place called Coffin Rock where the bodies of um, all those search party men were allegedly found back in the 1800s. Mm-hmm. Everything seems normal. They camp for the night. The next day they find an old cemetery with heaps of those weird rock piles and stick, like stick figure things again. And um, it all looks like quite ritualistic, like it's been placed there, Mm -hmm. not like it's just natural nature stuff. Yeah. That night... Um, they hear like lots of twigs snapping around their tent, like someone's walking around their tent and that freaks them out. So the next day they decide to bail. They're like, let's, this is freaky, let's go. But they can't find where they parked their car on the edge of the woods. They're kind of lost. And it gets dark, so they say, we'll camp for one more night, we'll find the car tomorrow. They hear all that scary noise again that night and that night when they come out of their tent they find that they've been surrounded by the same freaky rock piles that surrounded the cemetery. And they were like, F this, we are going to bounce. And I cannot express to you, dear listeners, how freaky it is watching this movie because they're just filming all of this. They're petrified and you're petrified watching it, thinking it's actually happening. It's remarkable how much of this is flooding back to me now as you're describing it. So scary. Um, I hope that if anyone who's listening who hasn't watched it, this convinces you to watch it because it actually is just, it it is the most 
I, I think the experience of watching it probably wouldn't be as profound today because you know that it's all fake. But at the time, it was just so up in the air about whether it was real and what it was. It just, it was impossible not to be freaked out. Hmm. Yeah, so they wake up and these rocks are around their tents and they are just like, uh, no, nah, we are Audi. And so they are desperately trying to get back to the car that day, but then they realise that their map is lost and then they start seeing all these stick figures hanging in the, from the trees, like those little bundles of stick made to look like a little they stick were figure doll. Yeah. They're terrifying. They still can't find the car that day. That night they're in their tent again. They hear children laughing outside their tent. They hear foots, like really sort of, intense sounding footsteps, like people are running really quickly towards their tent. Their tent starts shaking from the outside, like someone's trying to get into it. So they all run screaming into the woods and hide until morning, which is such a great part of the film because you're just seeing this camera shaking while they're running into the woods thinking stuff is following them. And the crazy thing is you never actually see any, you don't see any figures, you you just hear this stuff. Which is what makes it so much more threatening. Yeah. Yes. So they hide out in the woods that night. They get back to their tent in the morning and all their stuff has been rifled through. And Josh's stuff is covered in that weird paranormal slime, but only Josh's Mm. stuff. That Mm -hmm. afternoon, Josh disappears. That night, Mike and Heather are in their tent and they can hear him screaming. They can hear Josh's screams coming from the darkness of the woods. Sounds like he's being tortured, but they're too scared to go and find him. So they stay in their tent. I remember this. Yes. It's, yeah, so scary. So So the next morning, um, Heather finds a bundle of sticks and inside is some of Josh's hair, Josh's teeth, and a piece of his tongue. So she freaks the F out, but she doesn't tell Mike because she doesn't want to upset him. And that night in her tent, she records the very famous scene, probably the most famous scene from the whole film. (laughs) I'm so, I'm so, I'm so scared right now. Scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I just want to say sorry to Josh's mom and to Mike's mom and to my mom. I'm so scared. Wait, I've got to go down. She's like this. I'm so scared. I'm so scared. <laughs> so that's like the most famous scene from the whole film. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was so beautifully done. Give the girl an Emmy, an Oscar and a Tony. Wow. Thank you. Except you have to imagine it with a lot. The scene was famous because there was a huge amount of snot pouring out of her nose. Like she is snot crying. She's petrified. Yeah. And so she's filming that footage in the tent about how scared she is and then they hear Josh screams coming from the woods again and this time they decide we've got to try and help him. So her and Mike run into the woods towards his screams and they find an abandoned house, I mean presumably Rustin Parr's house but we don't know, it's just this very spooky abandoned house in the middle of the woods. They can hear Josh screaming inside so they go in 
and there's all sorts of those stick figures hanging everywhere and there's um, children's handprints all over the walls. And you've got to imagine that this is, the house is dark and the footage you're seeing is just from their cameras and the light from their cameras. So it's just pitch black and then you'll see like, you know, bits of the walls and bits that you, it's like you're seeing it through their eyes. It's petrifying. Mm. You feel like you're in the house. Very much, yes. My, they each have a camera. Mike heads into the basement. He gets attacked by something and his camera drops to the floor. And the film ends with footage from Mike's dropped camera. So the camera's on the floor and you're seeing out of his camera. And all you can see in the shot is Mike facing the wall of the basement in the corner while you hear Heather screaming. Oh, my God, I'm actually about to start crying. I just petrified myself. You have taken me straight back to Erin Affair Hoyt's 1999 and I have goosebumps all over my body. Penrith Plaza Hoyt's for me, my friend. Oh, my God. So it ends with the exact, you know, it just, it, oh. And then it just cuts to black and there's, you know, 500 terrified teenagers sitting in the room wishing that they maybe hadn't seen the movie after all (laughs) because it was so scary. So I believed it was true and a lot of people did. If you went on IMDb, like I said, the the actors or or the they were listed on IMDb as filmmakers, Heather, Josh and Mike were listed as um, missing, presumed dead. After seeing the film, seriously, the Blair Witch Project is all anyone talked about for weeks. And it was like people were speculating about certain scenes and people were saying, well, I heard this and I went on this internet chat room and I read this and people like were going on the Blair Witch website. I mean, I for once stopped trying to download Backstreet Boys photos and was going on (laughs) BlairWitch.com to like try, which looked like. A tr- it didn't look like a website for a movie. It looked like a website about a true, like about a missing uh, kids, like missing college students. And um, mm. people were obsessed. It was petrifying. But of course, it was all fake. And I will now explain to you how they did it. Question. I- yeah, well, maybe you'll explain if the website does still exist. Like, can we still see it or even? Yes. Are there screen the grabs or something? Okay, good. Tell us. If you go to Blairwitch.com, it still exists and it still looks exactly like it did back in 1999. It's awesome. Mm. I think apparently they updated Blairwitch.com about on like the 10-year anniversary of the movie, but other than that, they've kept it pretty much as like an archival piece of history of, of what the website looked like when people went to look at it back when they thought it was a real thing. It's an incredible historical artefact for anyone who has no idea what the internet looked like in 1999. Yeah. <laughs> but this was peak. It's peak 1999. And you know what other website is still the same as what it was back then? What? The Space Jam website. you got to go have a look at that. <laughs> it's amazing. All right. I'll do that after this recording. <laughs> okay. So I will tell you how they did it. In um, 1993, a couple of film students called Daniel Mirick and Eduardo Sanchez, they realised that they often found true crime documentaries way more scary than act- like fictional horror films. And mm-hmm. so they were like, what if we made a film that combined the best of both of those kinds of uh, film? 
So they got a very small ragtag team together of other film students that they'd gone to film school with. They're all working shitty day jobs. They're all like waiters and call center operators. They wrote a 35-page script about something they called the Blair Witch. And the script had no dialogue because they decided that the best way to make the film would it for, was for it to be all improvised. Like they wanted it to feel as real and as much like a documentary as possible and they were like it needs to just be improvised for that. Like So, for example, like it would just say in the script, you know, the actors realise they've lost the map and then the actors had to just film a scene. Like they had to improvise everything. They knew they'd had to develop a really rich mythology around the Blair Witch that they'd made up. So they spent a really long time, like pro- like as long as they spent writing the script, they spent coming up with and making up an entire mythology and backstory around the history of the Blair Witch. Mm-hmm. They auditioned around 2,000 actors to find the final three who would appear in the film. Heather Donahue, Joshua Leonard and Mike Williams, those were their real names. They were actors. And they said they walked into the audition room and they were given no time to think. There was no like, hi, how are you? Thanks for coming. They just walked in and the director said, you've been in prison for eight years. This is your parole hearing. We're the parole board. Why should we release you? And they had to just (laughs) launch into it. it. And so... Uh. Because they wanted to make sure they had really good improvisational actors. So those three were chosen. Mm -hmm. Um, Before filming, the crew of the film went into the woods and they set up little drop points that um, had a little package with like food and water and script notes about what the actors would need to do like the next day. You know, little things like, you know, we need you to lose the map and don't tell the others, like stuff like that. Um, And the actors found those while they were filming by this brand new fancy technology at the time called GPS. (laughs) And at the time, a GPS system was this thing the size of a freaking like giant laptop Mm -hmm. and they pre-programmed little points into it where the um, little care packages were for the actors. So the actors had this giant GPS computer and each day they would go to where the GPS computer told them to pick up their little care package with food and water and notes of what they had to do that day. The crew wanted the actors to seem genuinely terrified and one of the directors had gone to army survival training. So he took a lot of what he'd learnt in army survival training and about like breaking people down to the point of like mental exhaustion and he put Mm. the actors through the same stuff. So they gave them hardly any food. They didn't have a lot of water. They would make them walk for miles and miles and miles during the day just with no point to it except to exhaust exhaust them. them. And then... Mm. And then during the night, the crew were the ones running around the tents, snapping twigs, shaking the tents, like trying to keep them awake. So they were like hardly getting any sleep. They were petrified. They were basically living out a real life horror scenario and being told, film it while we petrify you. Like it was nuts. This must have been in breach of so many different union rules and guild laws. They specifically hired non-union actors. Of course. (laughs) And they said um, that apparently the director's motto was, it is our job to keep you safe. It's not our job to keep you comfortable. Oh. And, 
Yeah. There was one mm. night where the actors cracked it. They had um, a code word. Oh, what was the, like a, a safety word, um, bulldozer. So if they said the word <laughs> bulldozer, they had to get pulled out. And there was uh-huh. one night where it was torrential rain, the tent collapsed, they were soaked and they called in bulldozer and the director was like, oh, fine. They, he said, we'll, put, we'll let you sleep in a hotel for the night so you can stay dry, but you're not allowed to shower and you're not allowed, we're not going to give you any extra food or anything. So they got to be dry in this room for one night and then they got dropped back in the woods the next day. That was the one time the actors broke. Well, I was just, you might get to this explaining how much they were getting paid and was it actually worth it for them? Not a lot. In the end. <laughs> no, not really. Because <laughs> so, this is a big um, ask. Yes, they're basically being mentally tortured in the middle of the woods and stuff that was terrifying was actually terrifying. So, like, when Heather found the teeth and hair and bit of tongue, her reaction was real because she had no idea she was going to find that. Like, she just woke up in the morning and found it. The teeth were real. They'd been obtained from a dentist. The tongue was a bit of um, an animal's tongue from a butcher. And the hair was Josh's hair. So Heather opened this... Thing of twigs and there was real human teeth, tongue and hair in there. Oh. So, like, she was scared. <laughs> it's nuts. Oh. And on the day, so on the day Josh disappeared, the crew took him out. Like, he knew he was going to disappear, but the other actors didn't because that had been in his little notes. And so the crew came and got him took him to a hotel room and he was like, yes, thank God I'm out of there. But before they let him go home, they spent a couple of hours recording him screaming. So they got all this audio of him screaming and then they sent him home and he's like, see you later. And the crew then took that audio to the woods and played it outside their tent for the next two nights to petrify them. Like they had no idea where Josh had gone and they just heard him screaming for two nights in a row. They weren't even in on it. No, oh, I had no wow. idea. Because all the actors got separate notes that they weren't allowed to show each other. So they didn't know what was happening. Like, it is mentally nutso. <laughs> so. I feel like this is. It- well, yeah, it's, there's a reason. There's many reasons this could never be made again or work again. Because I think just safety oh s laws now would not allow it. And also, yeah, it just. It, <laughs> it feels just, like it it's in breach of something that the UN would mandate, like human rights Probably. violations beyond just, you know, union laws or OH&S stuff. This is Probably. torture. I mean, if I opened that bundle of sticks and found human teeth and a tongue in there, I'd be like, fucking bulldozer, get me out, I'm done, you freaks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And at mm-hmm. that point I would probably start thinking, are these guys actually murderers and they've got me in here under the guise of making a movie but actually they're just messing with me and I'm going to end up dead? Like you would, because you're exhausted, you've been in the woods for a week, you're hungry, you'd start going nuts. Mm-hmm. So all the townspeople they interviewed at, in the start of the film about like the Blair Witch legend were mostly just people they knew or interesting people they did meet around town and they were like, do mm. you want to 
you know, being this thing. My favourite story is um, <laughs> this. There's a woman um, they interview called Mary Brown, who's kind of like this eccentric old lady who lives in um, Burkittsville, and she insists that she saw the Blair Witch once when she was younger. Um, I don't know if you remember, she's like one of the people from the start of the mm. film. She was actually played by a woman called Peggy Peggy was, um, when they were making the film and they needed to do it on a really low budget, like hardly anyone was getting paid, and so they tried to hire, like they tried to get interns to come because that's like, you know, free labour essentially. So they put up all these flyers at old film schools about interns and stuff, about interns. They got one response and when they went to pick up this woman, Peggy, it was a 75-year-old woman who just really wanted to like, do something cool and intern on a movie. So they had this 75-year-old intern called Peggy and she was so funny that they got her to play the part of this woman called Mary Brown. So she ended up in the movie. That's <laughs> cool. Oh, yeah, I know. So they finish filming and um, all the actors are traumatised and will probably never recover and they just go home and that's it. They've done their bit. They get paid and off mm. they go. The film takes about eight months to edit because there's a lot of footage and they sort of all think, oh, you know, maybe it'll get on TV, like maybe it'll get on some obscure horror cable channel. They're not expecting a huge amount from it, but then it gets accepted into Sundance, the Sundance Film Festival, which they're mm. shocked by. Um, and they're pretty clever at Sundance. They make they print out a bunch of missing flyers, so missing Heather Donahue, Josh Leonard, Mike Williams, and hand them out at the festival. So people think that this is a movie about these three missing college students. There's a midnight screening and there is a bidding war, like co- production companies and di- distribution companies. So film festivals work by you make a film, you screen it, and then a distribution company with a lot of money is like, I will buy that movie and I will pay to advertise it and put it in cinemas. And so there's a bidding war. All these distribution companies mm-hmm. want it. They eventually sell the film to a production company called Artisan who buys the rights to distribute the Blair Witch Project for a million dollars. They had spent $25,000 making the movie. And here's where things get clever. Artisan sees the potential for marketing this film. They're like, the reason it blew everyone's minds at Sundance, the reason it blew our minds is because everyone thought it was real. So Artisan Mm. hires a very fancy marketing firm to help them push that narrative that this is a real film with real footage about three real college students who went missing. And they say that in the end, the Blair Witch Project, it cost about $500,000 to make because $25,000 of it was on just making the film that the film students put together. And the rest of that $500,000 was pretty much spent on creating a massive marketing scheme around the movie. So that's when, part as part of that marketing scheme, that's when they made that half-hour documentary, The Curse of the Blair Witch. And that documentary was amazing, by the way. Like, it had an old press conference with footage from the 40s showing Rustin Parr, the murderer, admitting to killing all those kids. Mm-hmm. Like, and it was all faked, but it looked... <laughs> real like it Mm -hmm. you felt like you were watching a true crime documentary and that's when you know they wrote 
that entire book called The Blair Witch, a dossier, which is the book I had and was convinced was real. That's when they made the website that looked like a real website dedicated to trying to find the missing Heather, Mike and Josh. Mm. Um, And the internet was pretty new. So if you search The Blair Witch or The Blair Witch Project, you pretty much only got sent to that website. So that's the only information everyone was reading. Um, And like I said, if you search the actors' names, it came up on IMDb that they were filmmakers who were missing, presumed dead, to the point where um, all three actors said their parents all got condolence cards from friends thinking their children had gone missing. (laughs) Like, people believed it. Um, And then the trailers were released and the trailer had that iconic... I'm so scared right now, scene. Mm. So before the film was even released, people were convinced it was true. And it was one of the most clicked on websites of all time at that point, um, which they used to their advantage. So they started posting full page ads in newspapers that just had Blairwitch.com, 50 million hits and counting. And so then people got real FOMO about it because they were like, what? Like that was just unheard, like, a website to get like 1,000 hits was mm. big back then. So it just it yeah. just was this huge sense of FOMO and excitement and everybody felt like they were part of something, part of this like phenomenon. This It was like a ghost story was finally real. Like that's what mm. it felt like. We were seeing that for the first time. So the film is released and seriously, given that they made it for $25,000, this is nuts, it went on to gross $248.6 million. Like, that is just, <laughs> I don't know the maths on that, but that's good. That's a good profit. In what time span? Is that just in like the first month or is that um, in up the f- until today? Oh, in the first, like that's up until today, but in the first like mu- like few months, it had made like $100 million. Like it was just... Mm-hmm out of this world ridiculous. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's off $25,000 to make the film and about another $500,000 in like marketing and distribution. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it just couldn't happen today. Like, because the second something like this came out today, you would do one Google search and the whole thing would fall apart. Like people are way yeah. too savvy about the internet now. They're way too savvy about, you know, viral marketing now. I think it was just people wanted to believe and, like, it was the perfect storm of naivete and the internet being this new thing that we didn't understand yet and the genre of found footage films not really being a thing yet. I mean, people would... And I think on top of that, people were just really desperate to be a part of it. They wanted it to be true, like... There's this guy called Ben Rock who was the production designer, but he also wrote um, all of the mythology and the backstory about the Blair Witch and he wrote, like, that documentary and all that stuff. And he said he got into an argument with someone once who was like, yeah, the movie is fictional, but the legend that the Blair Witch that it's based on is real. And he was like, (laughs) I'm telling you it's not because I wrote it. (laughs) It is not real. And this person was like, excuse me, haven't you seen the footage of that murderer back in the 40s admitting that he killed all the kids? And he was like, yeah, we filmed that in a studio down the road. Like he just was like, I've created this thing that... People don't even believe it's not real when I tell them that it's not. (gasps) Which actually I was thinking when I was writing this, like, 
it's like the pendulum has swung and that's what's happening with fake news now and QAnon and stuff now. It's like kind of swung back. Well, I mean that like things are now so obviously untrue and people say, no, no, but I know it's real. I know it's real. It's like we went through this period of being so naive about the internet that we believed anything to becoming incredibly savvy to now the internet is being used against us again and people are back to being stupid. Yeah, I can completely see the parallel where you've got people that they want to believe something so they will just choose to believe it. Despite any evidence to the contrary, they will just choose. And the fact that a big part of the investment does seem to come from the fact that people go, oh, children are being abused in some way or have been abused in some way. Mm -hmm. I'm going to get on board with the solution because that means that I'm a good person Um, and that then sort of narrows in their focus into deciding, well, this is the path that I have to stay on Mm -hmm. to demonstrate that I am against cruelty to children in any way. Yeah. Well, this was, I mean, released in 1999, which was just at the end of that very destructive period of satanic panic across the US was, you know, Ah. the late 80s to mid 90s. So it was just at the right time, I think. But Mm. I, and it also reminded me a lot, that sense of being desperate to believe it was true um, because it was fun to be a part of something and it was fun to talk about it. Like conspiracy theories and ghost stories and all that stuff, it's fun to talk about. And I don't know if you've watched um, season two of Pen15 yet. Have you watched it? Not yet, no. So there's an episode where the girls, because they're teenagers around this time, I think they're teenagers in the year 2000, there's an episode where they get obsessed with the movie The Craft and they get obsessed with (laughs) witchcraft, which every kid did back in the late 90s, early 2000s. And, light as a feather, um, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a light board. Light as feather, yes. stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Uh, Mr. We Are the Weirdos. <laughs> but there's a scene where, what's her name? Um, Anna? I think her name's Anna. I forget their names. The blonde one. Her parents are getting divorced and they won't stop fighting and they won't stop yelling at each other. She's really depressed. She's really uncomfortable at home. So Maya pulls her out of the house and they run away to like this wooded area and they're just hanging out, sitting there talking. And Maya can tell how upset Anna is. And so she looks at the ground and she goes, oh my God, oh my God, look, these, these twigs, they, they were not arranged like this before. Look, look, they're arranged so weird. And like Anna kind of looks at her like, I know this is stupid, but then they kind of both look at each other and it's the most genius scene because there's a flash between them in their eyes. Like, we know this isn't real, but your parents are fighting and everything is shit and let's just f***ing get on board with this nonsense right now because it's something fun to focus on. And so mm. then they both start looking at the sticks and they both start convincing themselves that there's witchcraft and that they're witches and that they have this special power and they get really into it and they know it's not true, but it's just something fun to focus on. And, like, mm-hmm. I get that. I think that's, that's why I got obsessed with it when I was in year eight. I mean... That was pretty much at the pointy end. I mean, I was taken out of my mother's custody permanently less, I think, less than six months after the Blair Witch Project came out. So it was a pretty horrible time for me at home. And I think I got really obsessed with it because it was just something fun to be obsessed with. It's like a bit of a fantasy. And what I find so hilarious is that years later, because I remember being so confused about the Blair Witch Project for years because I was like, but I had that book 
and like that book was real. Like, and so then I was one of those people who once it came out that, you know, six months after the film came out, the actors were revealed to be actors. They were on the cover of Rolling Stone. Heather Donahue won the um, Razzie for Worst Actress at the Oscars. No (laughs) way, really? the day before the Oscars, yeah. Which I'm surprised by because I thought that was a solid freaking performance. Yeah. Yeah, so the actors became quite famous and, you know, the filmmakers just became the rock stars of the filmmaking world. So everybody, you know, within six months knew it was fake. But I was like, but this book. And so I became one of those people who was like, well, look, it's the movie was fake, but the legend it's based on is real because I've got this book and the book is filled with all this information about all this stuff. And it was years later when I was like going through my stuff, like childhood boxes of stuff, and I found the book. And I swear to God, on the front page, Jacob, like you open the book, the front first page, there's a disclaimer that says, publisher's disclaimer, the following is a work of fiction. Any resemblance to real people or stories, living or dead, is totally coincidental. Like, you know those disclaimers? Yeah. <laughs> I would have seen that as a kid. Like, I think I was just desperate for it to be real. You needed escapism for very obvious, exactly. important reasons. Yeah. So I think that's got a lot to do with it. People wanted it to be true because it was mm-hmm. funner if it was. Yeah. It is guaranteed a million times funner to watch Blair Witch Project if you go into it thinking it's real. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I mean, it's it's harmless. If you choose to believe that a work of fiction is true, but it's just within that one little protected bubble, Mm. that little fictional world, that's... That's completely fine. Um, the issues then mm. come in when, if that were bit to be something that would influence the way that you were voting or to maybe, you know, get you so riled up that now. you take a gun somewhere and yes. ambush people, um, that's a very, very different story. But back story. then it was just a silly horror movie. Mm. Today when people believe fake stuff, yes, you're right, it leads them to shoot up pizza parlours and mm-hmm. vote for people like Donald Trump. So. Mm. But at the time it was just, we were such innocent idiots who didn't understand the internet, didn't understand viral marketing, just did just, like I said, the perfect storm of naivete. Yes. Oh. Are you Those feeling nostalgic? I am. So much. <laughs> I know. It's so insufferable when millennials do get nostalgic for the late 90s and early 2000s. But let's face it, it was the golden age and will always be known as such. Early Christine Aguilera, Genie in a Bottle, Britney Spears. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather, stiff as a board. Light as a feather. He's sorry. He's sorry. He's sorry. Remember that bit? Feet are dragging across the floor. Me and my friends went to, because we lived in the Blue Mountains, so there's a lot of very witchy type stores in Katoomba. And we mm. went to one of those witchy stores and we pulled all our money together and bought a very fancy-looking silver dagger that had all those stones on it so it looked like a witchcraft kind of dagger. And we literally did that thing where we cut our hands <gasps> and, like, put blood into a cup and drank it because we uh. wanted to be like, <laughs> I know. But I was such a wuss that I was too scared to do it with a dagger, so I sat there with a safety pin, like, scraping at my finger going, ah! Uh, uh, until the tiniest bit fell out into the cup. 
So, oh, dude. Okay, you took it to another level. We spent a lot of money on um, herbs and crystals and velvet, but we definitely never actually pierced our skin or consumed each other's bodily fluids. Uh, if you weren't putting your blood into a cup and drinking it, you weren't committed to being part of the craft. I'll accept that. Yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, I mean, that's it. That was the Blair Witch Project. Um, the actors, Heather Donahue, uh, acted in a couple more things, but now she owns a legal weed store and has written about distributing, like, marijuana recipes and stuff. Of the other two, I mixed them up, but one of them ended up a high school counsellor and the other one just works a regular job somewhere. And um, like you said, there were a couple of sequels that died in the arse. The filmmakers all went on to do stuff of varying success, but nothing was ever as big for any of them as the original Blair Witch film mm. was. But it did, um, you know, spawn a lot of found footage films. So then we went on to have all the paranormal activities, stuff like Cloverfield. It really did revive the horror genre at a time when there hadn't been a lot of good um, horror movies. And it also just completely um, uh, revolutionised the way people thought about marketing and viral marketing and how we could use it. In fact, probably the people who were most successful out of this was the marketing firm they hired to come up with this strategy went on to become this huge, like, successful gazillion-dollar marketing firm that now to this day still comes up with cool campaigns for people on stuff like this. Wow. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It definitely sort of spawned its own special genre of cinema verite. I think that was the fancy mm. word that people were bandering about at the time. Um, and not only that, but sort of reinvigorated the supernatural sort of film. So up until that point, anything horror was very much slasher related. It was an actual yes. physical being with a knife. Um, and now it was something that was sort of a lot more ominous and faceless. And one of the things I'm curious, so the, the stick figures are very iconic mm. to Blair Witch. Mm. And I don't know if they'd existed previously, but then they started to sort of appear in different pop culture moments yeah. as a sort of threatening symbol going forward in things like True Detective and whatnot. Yeah. So um, did that you read was anything created, about that? That was created by the production designer called Ben Rock, who I mentioned before. He mm. just looked at a whole bunch of stuff like, um, you know, the runic runes and like the old mm. kind of rune alphabet and and all he looked in like Celtic traditions and he literally just came up with this stick figure thing like you know as just part of like props and they decided to use that as the image on the poster and it just became this iconic thing and he was like I got paid $300 a week to work on that movie for like four weeks and he created one of the most iconic sim horror symbols of all time. Yeah, because it has been lent on by so many mm. producers and cinematographers since that point. Yeah. Um, He's actually where I got a lot of information from. So, like, we give you just the gist, although that was probably a bit more than just the gist. But um, if you want to know more, I um, looked at... Um, 
this great series of blog posts by Ben Rock, who was the production designer and the guy who came up with all the mythology. Um, I'll put all the notes in um, the show notes, obviously, but he wrote eight uh, blog posts about the entire experience of making the film from start to finish um, on this website called Dread Central. So I highly recommend you read it because he literally was in it from the ground floor when they were like, wouldn't it be cool? And then right to the end. And then obviously I went to the BlairWitch.com original (laughs) website. I read a bunch of, there's a bunch of really cool articles written by marketing experts who look at the film from the marketing side of things and how amazing that was. So I read a bunch of those. And also what gave me the idea to do this episode in the first place was that new podcast that I recommended a few weeks, or it's not a new podcast, new to me, that I recommended a few weeks ago called American Hysteria. Um, a girl who mm. goes through like things in the US that people have like gone nuts over and then she kind of um, explores the reasons for why that happened. It's such a good podcast. She did a mini-sode, I think it's about 10 minutes long, on the Blair Witch Project and how everyone was obsessed with it for this weird six months of time back in 1999. So when I listened to her do that, I was like, man, I really want to look into that more. So I highly recommend listening to her little mini-sode about it as well. But that's pretty much all the main stuff I looked at. Plus I rewatched the movie, obviously. Caleb wouldn't watch it with me because he doesn't like horror. Oh, Caleb's a cat. The sequels? Have you ever seen <laughs> I the sequels? It by myself. No, I've never seen the sequels because they look like shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I've heard they are as well. So I don't... Yeah, it feels like they would ruin it. Yeah, and also by the time the sequels came out, it had lost the magic of the moment, which is that everyone mm. knew it was fake. And I think also um, the directors fell out with Artisan Entertainment, the company that um, bought the film, because Artisan wanted to put gazillions of dollars behind making the sequels really fancy and schmick and and blockbustery. And they were like, that takes away from what makes it scary in the first place. So the directors actually weren't, and the writers weren't connected with the sequels at all. Mm -hmm. Um, That was just a big movie company deciding they knew how to do it better. And they took away everything that made the movies magical and scary and work. So Mm. that's why they didn't work, I guess. Oh my goodness. My heart is still racing because you genuinely took me back to that, particularly the scene (laughs) where she unwraps that package and there are human Mm -hmm. teeth in there. I didn't know that they were actual human teeth to this day. Yeah, they got them Um, from a dentist. (laughs) But that, like everyone in the cinema's heart was pounding out of their chest at that moment. And then when the movie ended, like you said, everyone just sort of sat in this awkward, stunned silence. When he's standing against the wall so you know what's happening. Yes, like shaking. And um, I guess that's the reason why they have age limits. I'm sure this was one of the movies that my friends and I snuck into. We had a very sophisticated system of borrowing the library cards of people who are in grades older than us. Um, And that stood as our evidence that I must be Mm. 15 if I'm in year 11. (laughs) Check out my library card. Yeah. I'm pretty sure at Penrith Plaza they didn't give a shit, so we just went in. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't care. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for that. You're very welcome. I feel like I'm going to go listen to some Christine Aguilera and watch The Craft. Put some butterfly clips in my hair. Oh, oh, come on over, baby. And some glitter shadow on my eyes. I'm going to have a full (laughs) 1999 afternoon. All right, love you. 
Love you too. Bye. Listener.